You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Writers Live, a feature of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, designed to bring young and seasoned writers from across the United States to present their work to a larger audience. I'm Carla Dupre, the Executive Director of City Lit Project, a small literary nonprofit in Baltimore. And on behalf of City Lit Project, I'd like to thank Tracy Diamond and Enoch Pratt Free Library for the longtime partnership we have enjoyed over the years as we pledge to bring esteemed authors to Baltimore. Tonight, I have the pleasure of introducing to you an author who has traveled much further than across these United States to join us tonight. Aisha Haruna Hata is visiting us from as far away as Senegal to read from her latest work. She's the author of Harmatan Rain, the story of a three-generation Ghanaian family, which was nominated for the 2010 Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and Saturday's Shadows, shortlisted for the Kiwani Manuscript Project in 2013 about a family struggling to maintain its cohesion in the midst of a tenuous political setting, and her most recent work, The Hundred Wells of Salaga. Now she'll say that it has a little bit more of a song to it. Born and raised by two journalists in Accra, Ghana in the 80s under a military government, Aisha studied biochemistry at Mount Holyoke College, then Columbia University, and received her MFA at NYU. She's a recipient of the 2016 Miles Moreland Foundation Scholarship for Nonfiction on the History of the Kulinet and the 2015 Africa Center Artist in Residency Award Laureate. Aisha had a residency as a Sakatar Fellow in Brazil. Some might describe her as nomadic, but this very curious literary star is audacious in her work to tell the untold story. Look for her contribution in a forthcoming anthology, New Daughters of Africa, edited by Margaret Busby. She's also working on a translation project with a group charged with translating ancient African documents, which means learning to read and translate the ancient Egyptian alphabet. The project is aimed to give African access to the ways in which our ancestors lived their philosophies, values, and worldviews. The Hundred Wells of Salaga seamlessly maps the personal onto the political, chronicling the lives of those straddling the fate of countries and colliding personal histories of two women featured in this new work, one a slave, one a mistress, one privileged, one not, though the privileged one proves to be just as caged. Amina, whose idyllic life is uprooted when she is brutally separated from her home and everything she had come to know, and Wurchi, is that how you say it? The willful daughter of a chief who is desperate to be seen not as a woman but as a leader, a queen. Like many writers, it was that thread of an untold, perhaps unspeakable story that led Aisha to write what life may have looked like in the world of her maternal great-great-grandmother who was a slave and had a mistress. She had no name and no known history and ended up in one of the biggest slave markets in Ghana. For years, Aisha reimagined the life of this ancestor called the slave, her imprisoned life, and what it must have felt like to lose everything she ever cared for. Aisha is part of that new generation of African writers who dare to unwrap those untold stories, 
those secrets that bear telling to a present, a different narrative of pre-colonial Ghana. What she knew about this great-great-grandmother was that she ended up in the Salaga slave market of northern Ghana. Sometimes when life teases up an ancestor, a writer learns quickly when she must be that voice. Aisha became more than a little curious about her journey, and that curiosity forced her to want to learn more about the route her great-great-grandmother was forced to take, the man she would marry, and at a time unbeknown to her when the country was in the throes of being colonized. While much has been written about the transatlantic slave trade, little has been written about slavery within the continent of Africa, often described as benign. What Aisha has done is piece together that life, what people wore, what they ate, the dismantling of a continent before colonization, when the air was right with the scent of urgency and change. The Hundred Wells of Salaga opens wounds of our past through the thick but delicate fabric of African history. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Aisha Harona Atan. Thank you, Carla. That introduction was beautiful. Thank you all for coming tonight. I like that it's going to be an intimate evening, so you can get as close as you like. You can come forward. And um, I guess I'm going to get right into the reading, and then we'll see how it goes from there. We will have a discussion afterwards. So I'll read, as Carla mentioned in the introduction, the book is about two women, one who is enslaved and the other who becomes a mistress. And it's set in 1890, so this is before Ghana, which was then known as the Gold Coast, um, became an entity. And um, the first character, Amina, is loosely based on my great-great-grandmother, who was called a slave. And uh, this begins in a small village. I imagine she lived in what was going to become Burkina Faso. So I have a map I like to show. If you can imagine the continent of Africa, and this is West Africa over here, our heroine Amina is taken from this area, and she ends up here, and this is where our other heroine, Wuche, lives. So I'll start with Amina's section, and then I'll switch to Wuche's to give you a sense of the lives of these two women before the, the events that um, change each of their lives take place. A week before the rain started, can you hear me okay? Amina heard the thumping of drums just as she was about to prepare the evening meal. She dropped the onions in her hands, thanked Utiano that misfortune had been averted and hurriedly made for her twin sisters in her mother's hut. The girls rushed to join a throng of their village sisters and brothers, belting out songs of welcome. She could barely hear their own songs drowned out as they were by the caravan's drums. Amina and the twins squeezed themselves through tiny gaps to move closer to the front. Camels and their riders filed by, moving almost in tandem with the beat of drums, followed by women balancing enormous cloud-shaped bundles on their heads. They were trailed by donkeys saddled with sky-high loads, then porters, then pitiful-looking men and women burdened with baskets and, paint and pans, wearing nothing but strips of cloth covering their private parts. Hassana, the elder twin, flapped her arm excitedly at a figure in the distance that appeared to float above everyone else in the procession. The Madrigun. 
Amina's heart twitched with excitement. The Madugu, a majestic figure riding a gigantic horse, lifted his hand to salute the crowd. It was as if he moved and the ground shook. It was what he wore. It was his horse, his dance. It was his power. It was the fact that he had seen places in the world none of them had. He was the highlight of the caravans. At the end of the procession, boys in rags banging on calabashes collected money from those who would give it to them. They left Amina feeling sad. On seeing the beggars, the crowd moved forward to stay in line with the Madugu. As if just by looking at him, his majesty would rub off on them. The air was thick with the smell of caged rain, a herby livestock odor, spices, soups boiling. As the pink evening lights began to stroke the sky, the excitement of the crowd mounted. So this is the world Amina is living in. Um, it's not like this every day in her village. It's usually quiet, but then a caravan is passing through, and this is the excitement as she experiences it as a 15-year-old. And then in Salaga, to the south, this is what is happening to Uche, who is our princess. To prevent the bustle of Salaga from encroaching on them, the royalty of the twin towns of Salaga Pembe restricted Pembe to royals. Everybody else was welcome to stay in Salaga. But to Uche, Salaga was like the soups her grandmother often cooked, bubbling with meat and fish of all types. It was home to Mosis, Eurobas, Hausas, Julas, Dagombas. While visiting, Wuche often gazed with longing at the European weapons that had come up from the coast, at the horses brought down by the Mosis, and listened to the banter between the traders who wanted to get rid of their wares and the buyers who simply liked to bargain. Everything was for sale in Salaga. Her father often took her to the races there on Fridays, but early in the week he had taken her brothers to meet the other chiefs of Pembe at an emergency gathering in a town with a powerful oracle that had become a mediator for the kingdoms in the area. Wu Che and her grandmother were therefore representing the family in the men's absence. The woman headed for the race course, passing by sheer trees, their branches spotted with the oval bodies of a thousand stalks. The woman continued past broken-down huts and uncountable wells, coins from every corner of the world, embroidered leather shoes, massa, massa, massa. At the entrance to the race course, a madman danced as men thrummed on wide-rimmed drums. Padada, padada, padada. Muttered hair, dust coating his body. He gripped a large piece of meat. He jigged his shoulders, slowly lifting one knee, then the other. Every muscle fiber of his brown arms and legs moved. The drummers pounced on the skins of their drums. Manic fire lit the madman's eyes. He swayed left, then right. Wuche thought he would fall. So we can stop here and then talk a bit. And then if there's time, I can do a, a third reading if you'd like that. Are we, Carla? <laughs> we like to do intimate kinds of things. So if a question comes up, please, by all means. So, Aisha, yes. we need to know, okay, this, this story comes from the idea of having a great-grandmother whose story was untold. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how that 
and tell us how long ago that occurred for you. Okay. That seed was planted. Okay. It felt like you had to hear this her yeah. story. I've been thinking of when the actual moment occurred, and I can't remember, but it was over 10 years ago. I sat my father down to draw a family tree because I'm the kind of person who wants to know everything about where we came from. And so finally managed to pin him down. I had my Sharpie. And then we did the family tree on, my, on his paternal line. And the number of twins in that, in that um, branch of the family, the last name Atta actually means twin. So there's a story in there too. Um, and then he starts with his maternal line, and he says the slave's daughter was Imashetu. Imashetu's daughter was Imalarai. I am Imalarai's son. Obviously, you're my daughter. Wait, stop. The slave. That's how he said yeah. what he called her. What was her name? He had no idea. Um, I asked him for more. He knew that she could have come from the Sahel, so Burkina Faso. Uh, Mali or Niger, that she was beautiful, she was considered beautiful, and that she had reddish skin. And what's interesting is that my skin is black, 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 and I love it. My sister's skin is reddish, and uh, in every generation you can see this woman manifesting herself. My father's brother has his reddish skin. It, it actually is red. We call my sister and her, one of her twin sons who has it as well. She has twins. But one of them is redder than the other, so we call them the red ones. The red the family. <laughs> but she, yeah, so she keeps coming out in the generations. And for me as a writer, it just stuck with me. What was her name? Who was this woman? And so writing this book was my attempt to give her a name and to let her speak and tell her story. So the only contact you had was from your father's memory of yeah, her. Yeah, but then I went up to... Salaga, um, after which this book is named, which used to be an infamous slave market in the 18th, 18th and 19th centuries in West Africa. Um, and this is where my ancestor ended up. So we have family that's still in Salaga, and I went up there, and I met my uncle. He was this tall man, Uncle Mutawakilu, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. And he was my guide to Salaga. And he took me on tour of this town, because it's a small town, it's not that big. And every time I broached the subject of ancestor, he would change it or say, oh, we'll get to it later. And we never got to talk about this ancestor. But he and knew about the story. He knew he about it. he kept brushing you off. And there was another uncle who was a red one, red, 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 with glasses. I remember he was sitting under a hut. And I asked him about it, because I thought, this is, this is my direct story. link. Nothing. 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 Nobody would tell me anything about her. So they knew about her, but they didn't want to share her story. They didn't story, want to talk about her. Which I'm sure as a writer piqued your curiosity exactly, even more. Exactly. And over the years, what I've come to learn was that, or is that, there's a combination of shame that we're descended from an enslaved person because for some reason, slaveholders are celebrated in this part of West Africa, and if you're enslaved, it's something you should keep to yourself. A, because you can't inherit property according to the Kashmir laws. B, if you wanted to become a chief and you, it was found out that you were enslaved, it's possible that you wouldn't be given that chance at chieftaincy. And three, there's a lot of stigma associated with that. So Absolutely. Yeah. The one thing about shame, so quick that she would always say, you know, um, 
to take something shameful away, you have to speak good voice, mm-hmm. say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Then that's what you're trying to do. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because I think I felt that way too. I think the popular discourse now is to say, oh, we're kings and queens, or you're a queen. Right. And everybody wants that glory. Everybody wants to be a king or queen. So then when the narrative is the other way, then you say, oh. Of course not. And the very know, so. idea, but I imagine a writer's curiosity, mm-hmm. the minute no one wanted to t- tell that story, you had to want to, you I was had hungry. to be insistent. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So did you sense, when you started inquiring about what she may have been like, mm-hmm. um, was there anyone, any elder who offered a little bit of that, a peek into that life? No, no. I may mm. have to go back and, and dig someone, maybe talk to women, because I only got to talk to the men in that village. Um, yes. Yeah, so good idea, because this is an evolving conversation, and this is just the beginning, so I will have to go back. Like I said, my main link, he passed away, mm-hmm. so um, I'll have to go back and make new new links. Absolutely. Yeah. But the fact that you opened the door at all. So um, can you give us a, a sense of how Amina and Warchi came about for you? Mm-hmm. Just talk a little bit about their um, spirits. Okay. So Because um, Warchi, when I think of her, I think about all the women today who say, you know what, I don't want to be in the kitchen cooking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not interested in raising kids. Yeah. And you look at that and everyone's trying to put you in that role and she's saying, oh no, no I'm not having stop. it. Yeah. So I'll talk about her okay. after Amina because we were talking about my ancestors. So obviously I got zero information about this woman and what her, her spirits could have been like. So what I did instead, instead was so search to look inside and to, to study my father and his grandmother and um, to see the things that connected all three of us. And then I had a fourth person who was a direct link to this ancestor, mm-hmm. who is her daughter, Emma Shetu, the woman after the moon name. Shetu is Aisha too. And she was my father's favorite, favorite grandmother. And he has stories for days about how she didn't have that many teeth and she liked chewing cola nuts and <laughs> he would grind them up for her to, to nibble on. And she'd tell them stories about moving through West Africa and were wild animals like lions and things like that. But then the biggest takeaway for me was that she was such a kind woman who wouldn't take anybody away from her doors. She had a resident madman. So I think in, it's a thing too. I think I attract crazy in the same way that she does. But um, she, she didn't turn anybody away. This man helped her in her cola nuts business. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. That kind spirit. Because I saw it in my grandmother too. I have... On my mother's side, a fierce grandmother who everybody was afraid of, and on my, my, on my father's side, is this gentle, gentle woman. My dad's mom was just so sweet. She was the sweetest person I've ever met. So I knew there was this kind, gentle spirit that was mm-hmm. going through the generations. And my own father, like sometimes he has a temper, but for the most part, he's a really kind person. He can't say no to people. So I knew that there was this spirit. And I think I'm. I have the same problem. <laughs> I don't know about the kindness. I'll let somebody judge me on that. But I think it's hard for me to say to no say to people. people. So, so I used that to build Amina's character. And um, She's so beautifully done. Just the way she cares for the twins. Yeah. You know how she, she just... She's selfless. Yes, yeah, so you even, feel that immediately. Even for Wuche, without giving away too much, you have to read the book to find yes. out. Yes, yes. But she... Because um, I, I don't think... 
she stays, she does feel caged, but I don't think she stays at some point because she's feeling caged. I think there's a point where she feels responsibility for Muche and Muche's child. I'm giving away too much, but yeah, um, it's, it's a complex thing with her. And then with Muche, I wanted to create a, a badass. I wanted to create yeah, a badass. She is badass. <laughs> um, because as I was doing my research, I kept coming across badasses in West African history. Like, um, like Queen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there's Queen Amina in, um, in Hausa land in the 15th century. And some historians actually say she wasn't a queen, but she was known as this woman who would go out and fight battles. And she had many lovers several of whom did not live to, to see another day because she killed them after the exploit, so nobody would go, you know, talking about their business. And then um, she, she's an interesting figure because she's left out of the kingship, um, the list of kings in this region of West mm -hmm. Africa, even though she was influential. Um, so, yeah, I, I, took, I took a bit of her to write Ruchi's character. There was another woman in the 17th century called Buche, who's directly from Buche's people, okay. the Gonja. And she led a battalion of 300 men to safety. So you have to be a badass to be able to do that, to corral a group of 300 men Absolutely. and get them to go away. And let them listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> it took something. There are people like Queen Amina, there are people like, um, sorry, I'm repeating Queen Amina, Queen Izenga. Um, Yasantwa, all of these people were flawed, were actually flawed women. Like, um, Yasantwa didn't want the institution of slavery to end, and people don't know that. They just say, oh, we need these heroines celebrated. Mm -hmm. So I wanted a flawed badass, and, and I think that's how Uche came to be born. And um, yeah, she was, she was fun to write because writing Amina's story got <coughs> quite intense for me. You know, you're writing about this woman and you realize this is what my grandmother went, my great grandmother went through. Whew. So, so, how, so how did you set that up for us yeah. too? Because there are a lot of writers in the crowd too. Okay. So when you wrote that character, um, I imagine you summoned the, I mean, I mean, okay. you summoned the ancestors because a lot of this you'd have to imagine. Mm -hmm. So there had to be research about that time period, what she was living through, what it would have felt like yeah. for her. Um, just like give us a sense of the research that you had to do and and. Okay. Um, where you pulled, where you pulled from mm -hmm, to, to create mm -hmm. this person? Um, I read a lot of accounts. Salaga by this time had been visited a lot, especially by Europeans who were looking for, who knows what they were looking for. Sometimes it was like the Niger, some people were looking for Livingstone. People had all sorts of motivations for finding the interior of Africa. So by this point, by 1890, a lot of visitors had come to the region and they wrote letters to each other. Sometimes um, there were German accounts, sometimes it was a French account, sometimes it was Englishmen. But the ones I found particularly useful were two missionaries, David Asante and Theophilus Opoku, who were African missionaries who came to Salaga. And it was telling because one of them, before the, there was a war in Salaga, before this happened, he came and he described Salaga as this lush green place with like rolling hills. And the language is so beautiful. You can see that he's treating the subject of his writing as human beings mm -hmm. versus the anthropological stance that a lot of the European writers took. Um, so it was, it, it was a lot of reading of that sort. 
and then just anything I could find about West Africa, because in my, in my mind, in my imagination, the space was open, and people traveled from one corner to the next. Some people traveled and settled and didn't move, and it's the truth. Like, even Salaga, when I said, when I read that the royals left it for everybody else, mm -hmm. it's true, a man came from Nigeria, he was called Bature, and the people, the royals of Pembe, didn't want foreigners in their, in their tiny village, so they gave him Salaga, and that's how this town developed and became a market and then soon people were traded there. But I imagine that the whole place was, you know, open and people went, came and went. So anything I could read about West Africa, I swallowed, I gobbled up. So a lot of the relationships between women I got from reading about Nana Asmao, who's a woman from 18th, 19th century Nigeria, um, everything I could lay my, lay my hands on and I mean, with a book, I think no book is ever finished. For those of you who write, you, you might face this. There's so much more I could put into mm. this, you know. It could have expanded into a bigger project, but sometimes you have to let things go. So, Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of movement in the story. Um, you really set up the... I felt like I was experiencing things with her. Like, um, and you, when you read Aisha's work, you'll, you'll want to... Uh, the way she describes food... It is so meticulous, mm -hmm. so detailed. Because I think a lot of writers leave out the whole notion mm -hmm. of taste and smell, but you feel like you're right there. You're right there with the movement. Um, tell, give us a little sense of how food plays a role in you know, your work. And, um, okay. Um, I wrote uh, an essay for the New York Times about my favorite dish, which is called Fufu and Ebunu Ebunu, it's green soup. And I was talking to my best childhood friend who's here in the audience with mm -hmm. us today about this food just today because we went to a Ghanaian restaurant. Oh. It really is a dish that makes you think of the ancestors because it makes you think, how did they even come up with this? You have fish, you have snails, you have um, contome, which is almost like spinach, and it feels so earthy and ancient. Mm. So I think, I believe that food actually is one of the ways in which pieces of our past that we've lost can be pieced together. Like things, yeah, foods like cassava came in from the Americas. But even with that, then you can, you can use that to date yes. things. And then before that, what were we using? There were yams, there were local yams. And then when did that come into the diet? So I think food can be really used to tell our story. Because in a lot of West Africa, I find that we've lost so much. We're being colonized by going through almost 400 years of slavery. We've lost so much. I'm trying to find these pieces of of us, and, and food is one of the ways in which I think we can do that. Um, so I, I researched a lot, and the, some, some um, travelers were kind enough to describe things, and as they described them, I was like, oh, that's tall, that's what mm -hmm. we still eat in the north of Ghana. And then they described shea butter, which is, has always been big yes. in, in northern Ghana, and they described people cooking with shea butter, so... I know my grandmother did that in, in Tamale. These days, people use vegetable oil, but I got to spend a bit of time in the north with my grandmother, so I saw these traditional ways of cooking, and I saw them in 1890s Salaga. So that's that's the way we can trace some of our Absolutely. ourselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Food is a rich history of mm -hmm. families. Um, how has your family reacted to your book? My mom loved it. So it feels it's telling being here today because my mom is, she has an autoimmune condition which affects her eyes, so she can't read at certain times of the day, and she can't, she certainly can't go through a long book by herself. 
Um, but her sister read the book to her. I, I was just going to yeah. say, what a wonderful gift. It was so sweet. That she would go and visit her every day and just read chapter by chapter. And sometimes I was like, oh my goodness, we're reading this to each other. You know, my mom's, my auntie and my mom. Because there's some scenes that are pretty graphic. <laughs> Oops. But they loved, they loved it. And the praise has been encouraging. I feel like they, my mom and her sister are my primary readers because they introduced me to the love of books and the fact that now they're reading my work just is, um, it gives me everything to keep going. Because writing can be difficult. You can give up so easily and having someone believe in you as one and someone who's reading to you admire, that's everything. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And my father, I don't know, I don't think he's read it yet, but... Give them a moment. <laughs> I know. I know. I'll, give them, I'll give them some time. And then, but they know yeah. you're touring all over there. Yes, they do. Absolutely. Well, we're real proud of you. And um, the idea that you're talking about pre-colonial Ghana, mm -hmm. um, those conversations we simply don't have. So it's I think you, yeah. uh, Absolutely. So we're, you're, we're hearing these stories. So how do you feel about the idea that um, all of a sudden there is an explosion of African writers that we're you know, started to yeah. hear about. I love it. I'm I'm so happy when I see another African writer's book in the bookstores and that we're telling our stories. Not that we haven't been doing that, but now that the that the world is paying attention because we have been telling our stories for Absolutely. a while, but now I think the world is um is getting clued in on how rich, diverse, how exciting uh, our writing and our stories are and um, I have some friends whose books came out this year one of them is House of Stone which is just a brilliant book about Zimbabwe and then last year there was Freshwater by Quake Amazing yes. which just was a mind shifting book and then these ones I don't know but there's a book by um, Namwali Sepel which is called The Old Drift in Zambia which I'm dying to read it's steeped in historical fiction and the future and we're doing such amazing work and it feels like an exciting time to be a writer and a reader because I am that first, a reader first. Absolutely. And so It also feels yeah. like it's about time, about right? About time, yeah. You know, a lot of us know writers who have been yeah. cranking it out many years and all of a sudden, you know, that door is open mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we see it's actually flung open yes. so we get to see that. Yes. What was the biggest challenge in writing this book? I think it was finding women's stories. I mentioned um, doing research, but women were just ignored. Um, even when they're describing a scene, I feel like they focused, the, the writers who were male themselves, focused on other men. So imagining what women went through, that, that took a lot of reading between the lines, a lot of... Um, yeah, digging and digging and digging until I could find even a nugget of information. There's a book that was really useful called Salada, The Struggle for Power. And I think in, it was in this book that um, there was a throwaway line. It said that princesses could choose their partners. And even if their partners were already married to somebody else, they could you know, snatch them from the men and have them. And it was just one line, it was almost a throwaway mm -hmm. line. So that was a detail that also shaped Wuche, I should mention Absolutely. So, yeah, it was close, close reading and trying to find where the women were. And so that was one struggle. Um, but too, it made me imagine a life where, 
and you know, we experienced that in the states where women were kind of silenced. Mm -hmm. They were powerful figures in the lives that they, they undertook, but they were really silent. Exactly. So how could their stories be told other than someone clearly observing their movements mm -hmm. and creating a story out of what they saw yeah. versus what they were told? Exactly, exactly. Because I mentioned Queen, Queen Amina. She was a powerful ruler, but the people who listed, who wrote down things were usually men. So she was left out of that registry of, of rulers in, in Hausaland. When I read this, these stories, I realize you're putting them right back in. Mm -hmm. You know, you're um, finding a way for to them to speak. Pay homage to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I'm not, I don't believe in blind Welshmen. I'm not just saying, oh, we should celebrate them. But I saw them as flawed and as nuanced and complex. But let's, let's talk about them in that complexity. Let's not just reduce them to tiny symbols of the past. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um... For any audience members want to question, I'm going to up this time. Anyone? Tracy? Questions. And please introduce yourself in small groups. So. Oh, well, my name is Wendy Burgess. I, for many years, was director of the International Student Office at the University of Baltimore, which is the state institution of people So I'm familiar with a lot of Ghanaian and, and Senegalese. And I wanted to ask you why Senegal now? And also, I wanted to ask you if you are familiar with Brittle Paper the platform. Yes. Because I would love you to be featured there. Thank you. They, they, they are big supporters of my work. So, so okay. Yeah. I know that they are. Yeah, they are. And I think um, its founder was here I for a long time. Yeah. She's now a professor at the University of Wisconsin. Okay. Okay. But they've been really big supporters of my work. I know they published um, an excerpt or two when the book first came out. It came out in the UK last year. Yeah, great. And Senegal was where I wrote my very first book in 2007. I was a 23-year-old woman who had just moved back to Ghana, and I found out that Ayikwe Ama of the Beautiful Ones and Airborne Fragments, 2000 Seasons fame, had a writer's project for 25 to 35-year-olds, and I'd moved back, I had no idea what I was going to do, and my aunt was co corresponding with him, so I said to, I wrote to him, and I said, I'm mature, I promise, and I sent my <laughs> writing sample, and um, he read it and said, okay, you can come. So I went by myself to this small fishing village called Popengin, and for nine months had Aikuyama hold my hand and show me how to write a book. Um, when that was over, I came back to do my MFA because I, I wanted to have the degree to be able to teach if, if that ever became um, a thing I wanted to do. And then three years ago, in 2005 years ago, in October <laughs> 2014, um, I'd been living here for a while and I was feeling the tug of home and he sent me an email just around the same time and he said, so you have coconuts, Alitas. You have the um, you have the technique of writing down. Do you come and get to the content now? So he invited me back, and that's when I learned Egyptian hieroglyphs. And with the help of dictionaries, we started doing work translating some of these ancient documents into English. And then his publishing cooperative would then um, 
get it get the documents translated into a number of African languages. So I went there and worked with him for a year. And then uh, life happened, and I'm now a mother and a wife as well. And so yeah, I've um, settled in Senegal. And it's nice to be close to him as well. It's next to the sea. It's not a bad place. And we are still in the village of Popinguin, so it's good. It's good. Yeah. What a wonderful <laughs> gift over someone to say yeah, time. Yeah, come on. Right and the time was like, perfect. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Are you still thinking about the possibility of teaching? Either there or here? Or Not right now because I have a toddler and right. I really want to be involved in this life. I know there's a big debate about, yeah, can women have it all? Work-life balance. And... I am lucky enough that I can write full-time now and still have a chunk of time to be with him. So yeah. I think teaching would change that dynamic with having to grade. And so for now, I, it's still a dream that I'll put on, on hold. <coughs> Excuse me. Absolutely. How old you, baby? Oh, he's, he's all the way in Senegal. He's, yeah, two and a half, and he's um, oh a feisty man. <laughs> a feisty little man. Absolutely. I miss him. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And Tony Morrison used to say, you know, just keep writing, just keep the babies at your feet. That's mm -hmm. all. Just make well, room for that. Right, right now he doesn't stay at my feet. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be out there. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Anyone else have questions? I had a question about baby. Hey, Aisha. Hi, Coco. I wanted to the, the different covers for the different translations mm -hmm. and your input into those covers. So the most inputs I had was into this cover okay. and um, the Cassava Republic cover, although the artist with that one, the Cassava Republic one was the UK edition, which came out last year, it has several wells with two streams mm -hmm. pouring into two of the wells. And that one, the artist just decided to focus on the wells and then I had a say in which image I preferred the most. But with this one, I could actually say I envisaged two women sort of interacting with each other to represent Amina and Wuche. And the artist is a 23-year-old illustrator based out of Philadelphia, Love is Wise. This is her first book cover. Oh, wow. And I think she did an amazing job, an amazing job. Um, with the other covers, the European editions, because they're all European languages, um, they just showed me the final work, the final artwork. Yeah, this is the one that I, I got to contribute to, and I love it. Yeah. Do you mind reading another excerpt? Okay. We'd love to hear from you. All right, so I'm going to do maybe something a little... My favorite section. Yeah, I haven't read that one in a while. I have to keep switching it up after every reading. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> this is Amina. Yes. A list of noisy things. Lizards, dogs, donkeys, hyenas, chickens and guinea fowl, birds in general, Flies and mosquitoes, geckos mating, Wafa Sapung, the short man during the day, Wafa Sapung talking to his wives, Wafa Sapung fighting with his wives, 
Wafa, Sapong, Wafa Sapong's wives fighting with each other. Wafa Sapong's wives pounding dried leaves or fufu. Hasana having her hair braided by Amina. Heavy rainfall on the thatch roof. The bracelets clinking up and down Wafa Sapong's first wife's arms. The second wife singing. The third wife's children yelling. Local dramas coming around to beg. Wafa Sapong fitting a cart on his donkey. Big pigs, little pigs. The village crier bringing news from town. Amina's stomach most days. A list of quiet things. The sun, snakes, stars, Amina's heart every morning, the thick forest surrounding Wafasapung's farm, seeds, millet seedlings bursting from seeds, the furry mold sprouting on everything, Hasana since arriving on the farm, Wafasapung entering Amina and Hasana's room at night, his excited exhalations, Hasana breathing by Amina, Wafasapung slinking out, the night, heaviness falling and conjuring every part of Amina till morning came, Wafa Sapong's wives on the goings on in Amina's room, moonlight. <laughs> So can we tell us what's next for you? So I'm working on a project I love, but it's just driving me crazy at the same time. It's my first book of nonfiction, and it's on the cola nuts, the coca, the cola and Coca-Cola. And it's the story of how this nut is deemed so important in West Africa and how it ended up in a beverage in uh, North America that came to dominate the whole world in terms of drinks. Um, so I've been to Nigeria, to Mali, the Gambia, Ghana, Senegal, to unearth stories around this nut because Imashetu, who was the daughter of this mm-hmm. woman, was a cola trader. Yes. I saw my grandmother chewing cola. It's a symbol that's big in Muslim West Africa. And then before you get married, before there's a, 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 a when a baby's born, before a fun, doing a funeral, these nuts are passed around, and they're so so important all over West Africa, including places in which this nuts doesn't grow. That and it was the thing of the caravans; people would travel from the north to the south to buy cola. So it's a fascinating, tiny, tiny thing that is shaped. A lot of the world, actually, because then there was movement between Brazil and um, Nigeria, Brazil and Ghana as well, in search of this nut to be used in candomblé ceremonies. So it's a big book about a lot of things, and um, I've done some research, I've written a draft, but it's just, for those of you who have done non-fiction, (laughs) like what to include and how to tease out the narrative threads and... um, while I love it, it's, like I said, driving me crazy at the same time because I just don't know what to do with it. So, 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 yeah. what's, so what is that process like for you? Okay, so when you do all the research, and I imagine, like you said, it's a lot to bring all in. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you put index cards everywhere? Is it post-it notes? Um, like, how do, you, how do you follow the train, or how do you... I got this on my Equate Ama. I used an Excel to organize okay. my <laughs> thoughts, and it works for me because I have a background in science, and I loved Excel anyway to begin with, a strange thing to see one loves, but I have my chapters in Excel and I can move things around that way and um, 
But yeah. I imagine as a fiction writer, there's a little bit of, I guess, when you're writing something that's nonfiction, mm-hmm. that creativity can doesn't I, end. Can I make? Can I make it? <laughs> but I, I don't know. I want. The, I don't want it to be a book of just dry nonfiction. I want it to be a book of many things. So. Right. Um, Queen Amina, whom I mentioned earlier, she is um, a woman who's credited with bringing kola nuts to Nigeria, to a certain part of Nigeria, and that's a big, big, big thing. But to to get Amina's story is to struggle, like I said, to find women's stories. And there are all sorts of um, myths around this woman. So... I've constructed a life with all the bits, bits and pieces and stories that I've had together, which I don't know if I'm allowed to do nonfiction, but I, I put together real facts mm-hmm. to tell her story. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how. I, I got to write it with the help of the Miles Mullen Foundation, and with that I had to turn in 10,000 words every month. So that way it, got, it forced me to just write. So there's a lot of filler. <laughs> Yeah, but I've I've been able to get rid of all the fluff that I I, I included to meet my quota. And I I think they're coming together, but um, yeah, I need to just finish it and see how it it goes. Well, I can tell you now, Amina and Rishi, um, I'm I'm glad you introduced them to us and and put them out in the world. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the writers that influenced you? Definitely. Tony and and Morrison, tell me why. Tell me a little bit about why. Toni Morrison was probably one of the first writers that made me want to be a writer. I was 13 in high school and we had an amazing library. And there were all, almost all of Toni Morrison's books. But I think the first one I read was The Bluest Eye, which really spoke to me, you know, a young girl, and uh, as a young girl, as a 13 year old. And, I was living in Ghana, but I could really identify with feeling like an other, not to that degree, but for various reasons. My parents are Christian and Muslim, and most people in the South were Christian. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really have a religion growing up. And then I was darker than most people around me, even though it's African, you think everybody... Yeah, yeah but and people want to always tell you about your dark yeah, skin. Yeah, like, you know, in some way. Yes. Or, or to make you feel strange other. about it. But I never had insecurities about that. Yes. But there were was, was still constant reminders of, oh, you're darker than mm-hmm. most people. And I was skinny, 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 skinny. <laughs> and um, all the boys went for, you know, the curvy ladies. So there were all these tiny insecurities brewing in me. And so reading Tori Morrison, that was on the content level I, I identified with the character. And then I read Paradise, which at the time I really didn't understand, but it was a world. She built this world of mm-hmm. amazing women. So I was like, one day I want to do this. I want to write about women too. Because I grew up surrounded by such strong women, um, on, on my mother's side especially. She has six sisters. Okay, yes. <laughs> you had stories. One of whom has been run for president in Ghana before, so that should tell you that kind of family. Absolutely. You know, strong, strong woman. And um, so Toni Morrison was a big influence. I could feel that too with Amina when she started discovering what the, the power of her body mm-hmm. and realizing that she was looked upon as a woman when she didn't feel that it was anything different. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden getting the attention of men. men. I think you did that particular scene so well because yeah. I felt her uncomfortableness mm-hmm. like all of a sudden she was seen in a way that she didn't know she would yeah. be seen 
Yeah. And it was frightening yeah. in many ways. Yeah, and she lost her mother. She loses her mother pretty early. Yes. So, so she didn't she have didn't that have connection. That exactly. Absolutely. Didn't know how to. Not that it would have made a difference as well. In some cases, I feel like mothers were gatekeepers for patriarchy. So they they sort of forced women to behave in certain ways. Mm-hmm. So Amina, she doesn't have that. So she does it on her own terms. And... Um, She's pretty good about it, I think. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Tony Morrison, anyone else? Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, yes. One Hundred Years of Solitude, was just an amazing book. Although you read books at different points in your life, and I tried to pick it up the other day, and that was Emil, my son, tugging at my sleeve, and I was like, nope. I can't read this right now. I, I have to read really simple literature. <laughs> um, Flash fiction. Yes. <laughs> Short Nothing the same with Marlon James, who I love for the Book yes. of Night Woman. Yes. And he has a new book out too. I tried to read a brief history. Emil, mommy. I might have to read it, read the, listen to the audiobook because. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When you I, have time in the car. I oh, love absolutely. reading big books, but I, I, I can't do it anymore. And I think even with my work, somebody um, who follows me on, I think, Instagram, she, she said, oh my goodness, the books keep getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> 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 but I, I know when I was pregnant with my daughter, I could all of a sudden all all my creativity went to her because I could not read, I could not write, and I was stunned for nine months. I was like this, this growing person yeah. was taking it all. And yeah, she's very creative though. Good, she did well. Then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, any other questions? Yes, Tracy. Um, I'd love to know more about the process of structuring the book mm-hmm. because it comes together it's really beautifully done um, and there are so many different ways that you could have told their two stories coming together um, and then you mentioned like you can use Excel to draft so I'd love to know right? your <laughs> structuring process I think everybody would like people like thank you for coming bye um, so the book went through so many different forms at the, f- the first time I tried to write it, which was 2012, it was almost like a young adult Game of Thrones. I had this character <laughs> fall in a well, because my father talked about the well in his grandmother, in compound a lot. So I had never visited that place, but in my mind, the well was stuck there. I think that's why the book also yes. stays with the image of wells. Um, so I had this character fall in the well and then go back in time and meet this ancestress and then... Um, I wrote a lot of it, but you know, as you know how it goes, that just had to be shelved. Um, then I started writing Amina's story, and then Wuche came in as well. And then I had an ensemble cast at some point. Everybody telling the story, but Wuche and Amina, and they needed to tell their stories. At some point, Moro, who is a, a slave raider in the book, had a voice, and he, he sort of bookended the the novel, and my editor said, you're giving the slave, the male slave raider the beginning and end of this. These are things you don't even think it's about. Right, you're you're good right, editor. Yeah. I really appreciated working with good editors and props to Casaro Republic and um, BB's team. They were, they, they thought about everything. So They probably do your book as well as you do. Yeah, oh yeah. Which Maybe even mean? better, because I'm so close to it that right. sometimes I can't step out of out of myself and out of it to 
Even when you, things, when you so. wrote it, did you feel like one character took over the, more than the other? Like, did you write them? In, I always say it's I hard to write books in order. Yeah. Like, who kept showing up first? Who had the strongest will to get their story out? Which character? I don't know. I just, the Excel sheet comes to mind again because I just went with what I felt like when I woke up. Okay. So some days Wuche spoke to me and some days Amina did. And I think both women do have parts of me as well. You can, your mm-hmm. characters reflect, the, the characters reflect the authors in some way or another. Um, so yeah, depending on my mood, I, I would gravitate towards Amina. And if I was in a fighting mood, I guess Wuche would be the person who would speak <laughs> to me more. Um, and the lovely thing about the Excel sheet is it's not rigid. You can go in and change things, move columns about. And it was really helpful for, yeah, structuring things. This book was more straightforward because it's pretty chronological. Chronological. My second book, I had newspaper articles. I had um, some people telling the story in the present, some people telling the story in the past. So coordinating all of that, Excel really helps you, yeah, just cut and paste and... Um, use color to to see where everybody is, and then the first book, which was over forty years of Ghana's history, forty fifty years, dates were really important. Like 19, 1960, this is what happened, and then finding that thread to connect to something in the seventies, and so yeah, excellent. I think it's one reason why I love the idea of you know looking at literature from different writers from different parts of the world. Because we think in terms of a one way to sell, tell a story. And by gosh, it's not the only way. Yeah. That's why I really liked Freshwater, which came out last year. It's a fascinating book if you haven't read it. She takes the idea of someone who would be considered probably mentally ill here in the mm-hmm. Western thought, and she shifts that kind of thinking into evil ontology and evil ways of living. So there's already, you have to read the book differently. You can't yes. read a book as a Westerner. Yes, you can't hold yeah, on to the only way of thinking that the story that. works. Yes. Fascinating book. So. And I think what that does so too, though, is it allows you to all of a sudden be open to more experiences mm-hmm. and reading writers that you're not used to. Yeah. And I, and I love that because to me, when you read like a book like this, all of a sudden your door, the door opens to you yeah. as a writer and a reader. Yeah. That you think you know something and all of a sudden you've been given a gift. Or something you didn't, you know, didn't know, but yeah. all of a sudden you're curious about it. Yeah, like what well, some of my favorite writers are not even African writers. I do have the ones that I like, but I love writers like Arundhati Roy from Yeah, the God of Small Things. The God of if small you have things, read, oh my gosh, the texture of her writing. Um, and she changed the whole idea of you know if she wants to put an exclamation point in the middle of the sentence, she would do it. She would do yeah. that. But um, you walk out loving those characters, exactly. thinking like, oh my God, the story. Like even Lucille Clifton and her poems coming from Lucille Clifton, she's yeah. like, wrote her poem. Oh, good. Yes. You know, she decided not to alphabetize most things, and good, you can do that. You can just... And she was very clear. Yeah. And she, she, the way she wrote poetry, she wanted to, it to be accessible. And I don't know if you've ever experienced Lucille mm-hmm. Clifton at a poetry reading. No. Um, there's nothing like it. Oh, I should look online. Oh, gosh. I miss her. I, think, I don't think Dodge Poetry Festival is the same without her. But she had standing room only because people loved the way she came to yeah. her. And she had a way of saying, poet this. <laughs> but um, I thank you. Thank I mean, you. You've been, you're fabulous. Um, 
Good luck on this. I know Thank you're going to be so touring. Much. You're going yeah. to Atlanta tomorrow. tomorrow. And then oh, where else are the states? Um, Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, <laughs> Oxford, <laughs> Mississippi. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope you remember Baltimore and come back. Thank you, Baltimore. Um, honestly, I feel like I've been given a gift just oh, learning through you. your work and knowing about you, and hopefully we'll stay in touch. Thank you both for this wonderful, wonderful conversation, and thank you all for coming tonight. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.